Wow, thank you, John. Tell her your sister, thank you. Uh, was that the first, first of your songs you've done? I thought so. So there are things as a boss you can tell people to do. Um, like, hey, John, make the website have this on it. But you don't, you don't tell an artist, like, I'm now requiring you to do one of your songs on Sunday morning. Like, I just, I've not been willing to do that. I've been telling John for years, like, hey, you ought to be doing, he writes beautiful music. And, uh, and so, anyway, thank you for sharing with us this morning. I won't draw attention to it in the future, I promise. That's, otherwise, I'm just going <laughs> to, he'll never do it again. So, um, uh, that was, that was uh, it is exactly what we're talking about and going to be talking about. And so, um, if you've got your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 6. Um, so if you remember from last week or the last few weeks, and if, if, if you need to catch up on the, the, where we are in John, because we're teaching through the book of John and, uh, and talking about that, and I really appreciate every once in a while one of you sends me an, an email asking me about something, offering me insights into the book of John or whatever, please continue to do that. Like that's, that is super valuable to me. Um, and so as, if you're looking ahead to the book of John and there's a section you're going, I don't, I don't understand this, please make sure you talk about this or or whatever, I, I love that. Or, or if you find something um, uh, that I can steal and use as if it were my own in the sermon, feel free to send that to me as well. Um, uh, right now, Media just released Tony Evans' discussions on the book of John, and I was like, yes! So uh, you can expect my sermons to improve over the next few weeks. Um, but uh, uh, hey, in, so here in John 6, you, you remember, so Jesus feeds the 5,000 in this incredible sign incredible miracle that's hard for us to even wrap our brains around, especially if you've grown up in the church and we're used to it. And, and then the last week we talked about how the disciples are out on the water and the storm is there and Jesus walks out to them um, and that whole conversation, how that played out. And then, and then the people are still looking for Jesus. It's literally so in your mind, you have the feeding of the 5,000 one evening and where we are now later in John 6 is still the next morning. And so it's not, we've, we've, we've gone three weeks, but the, the gospel of John has only gone about 12 hours um, in that amount of time. And so here we are, it's the next morning, the people have shown up in Capernaum looking for Jesus, and, and uh, we looked at that last week at the maps and, and even the storms that, that come on the Sea of, uh, of, of Galilee there. So here they are, they've come to Capernaum, it seems like Jesus is sitting in the synagogue in Capernaum. And this, these hordes of crowds show up, and that's where we are. And Jesus ends. They come and they say, like, how did you get here? And Jesus answered in verse 26, Truly I say to you, you seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So we talked about last week how this is, this is probably a discouraging moment for Jesus to realize. These people aren't coming because they realize something amazing is happening in their presence. They don't realize there's something significant going on. They just, they're hungry again. They ate more than they've ever eaten before the night before, and they got up the next morning, and they thought they'd be happy, and instead, they're hungry. And so they go hunting down Jesus for another buffet. Jesus says, you came because you're looking for more food, essentially. Verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father the God the Father has set his seal. So to interpret, translate, to bring into modern English a little bit what Jesus is saying here. Listen, if you spend all your effort, all your, all your energy, all your strength, all your resources into merely physical food, realize these people just sailed across a lake to find him. 
They, they, they're hungry the next day, and they're now investing all this energy in getting breakfast. Instead of doing things, instead of investing in things that go away, he's saying invest in things that last forever. Now, that's hard for us because we're hungry now. They're hungry now. And Jesus is saying, you're, you're not investing in the right things. You're investing in food right now, and you're investing all your energy and looking for more food, and you have the Son of God in your presence. You have the truth right here, but what you're worried about is breakfast. Get your mind off of the immediate, the worldly, the, even the fleshly, the right now. Don't focus so much attention there, and instead focus on what's going to last forever. But that's hard for us, as the amphibians that we are, that that C.S. Lewis pointed out, we're amphibians. Yes, we're spiritual creatures, and we're physical creatures. These don't cancel each other out. We're, we're not somehow this floating brain that just happens to have a body. That's, that's Yoda, not Jesus. This is, this is, the, the truth is, this is part of who we are. Um, all of this is part of who we are, our bodies, our souls, and who, who we are is all, is all there together. So that's true, and Jesus is saying, listen, but don't invest so much energy here. There's nothing wrong with physical food or money or anything else. There's nothing wrong with those things, except they perish. They rot. They burn. They go away. All of them. It's an amazing thing when you stop and consider this building someday will not be here. The building that we're building someday, it's not there yet now. And there will come another day when it's not there again. All of this stuff that's here, all this physical stuff, eventually it all goes away. That's hard for us to wrap our brain around. They perish, all of it. Investing your life in nothing more than things that perish is foolish. So Jesus is not saying, stop eating. Don't ever eat again. That's a waste of time. He's not stupid like that. He just fed them the day before. So it's not these things are wrong. It's just that if we invest too much energy or time into them, we're stunned when they go away. So I'm one of these guys who plays little app games on his phone sometimes. Sometimes I get too invested in them. I know, I don't mean to step on toes here. I know some of the rest of you are there too. And, uh, and so there was one, a Star Wars one, big surprise, right, that I was invested in and, and had played and, and didn't spend any money on or any that kind of stuff. I stay away from that uh, because I know what happens once you start that slippery slope. Um, the, uh, um, but I had friends who were in this game who were spending thousands of dollars a month on this game, which, I mean, okay. And then we just get this announcement one day in January. Hey, by the way, April, on April 1st, not kidding, this game is going to go away. Like, we're not doing it anymore. April is just gone. Six years of people investing in it, and some people thousands of dollars a month, and it's going to go away. And people go like, what? That's nuts. You think? But some of us are investing money in the stock market saying, not that that's wrong. It's not inherently wrong, just like it's not wrong for them to do that. Unless you think this is going to last forever. This will bring me joy forever. This car will. This house will. This retirement will. None of those things are wrong. Again, don't hear me saying they're wrong. But they perish. This one just perished quickly in such a way that even us short-minded people could go, oh, no. Yeah, and guess what happened? The value of everything in that game, big surprise here, when they announced we're ending the game in April, guess what happened to the value of everything in the game? Because all of a sudden everyone realized this is going to perish. It has an end date. So do we. 
We just don't know it. We're not aware of it. It's not right in front of our faces. And so to go, how am I going to invest? Am I going to invest in things that are about just the flesh? Am I going to invest in things that are just about the world? Versus am I willing to try to invest in things that are going to last forever? That's the mindset Jesus is talking about here. They're not wrong that they came looking for breakfast. They're wrong that they think that's all that Jesus is. Get up, eat, get ready, go to work, eat, work, come home, eat, watch Netflix, go to bed, and repeat. That's investing in a life here and only here, unless the work you're doing, unless what you're doing in between is also investing in things that are eternal. What's eternal? What's that? Yeah, what, what, what things are eternal? Yeah, the, the human soul. The people you interact with are eternal. All of them. Do we, do we engage with, do we invest in them as though they're eternal? What's more important? The person behind, by the way, I'm not preaching at you. This, is, this one's coming at me just as much as you. The person behind the checkout counter or the things that are being scanned? Which one is eternal? The person is, right. How about the, the person who's bringing us more water for our water glass or the thing that we're eating right now? The person is. Do we, do we engage with the world that way as if those things were eternal? This is, this is a different way of thinking. It's a different kingdom mindset. Do we put the proper value on the proper things? That's all Jesus is telling them. Of course, they're not going to get this yet. Some of them will later after he's dead and after he's been resurrected. Most of them won't now. We are moving, changing, teleological beings. We, we are intentional about what we're doing. We, we may not have a good intention, but everything we do has a reason. Therapy is founded on that. It may be a bad reason, or a dumb reason, or an ignorant reason, or an outdated reason, but it all has a reason. We are reason-based creatures. What is it that we long for? There's a hunger, as just as John just saying, there is a hunger in our souls. We're looking for something. What would be the best life? That's what we're always asking ourselves. What would make this a better life? What would be the best life for me? What do I seek first, meaning primarily? What do I primarily seek after? Where do I lay up my treasure? Where do I invest what I have? Jesus is warning them and through the centuries us, don't invest only in food that perishes. Don't even invest primarily in things that perish. And by the way, think how hard this is for Jesus to communicate. I, I have real sympathy for Jesus in John chapter 6. Jesus actually gets this. I mean experientially gets this. He gets this, and he's trying to explain it to those of us who don't get it. How do you explain, hey, invest only in eternity to people who are hungry right now? How do you do that? That's really hard to do, and Jesus is going to try to do that, and he's going to offend everybody when he does. But that's what he's trying to say. So they ask, they actually ask a, a, a pretty smart question. Jesus said, don't work for things that perish. And so verse 28, they say, well, then what, must, well, then what work should we be doing? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus has told them, God's seal is on me. I'm the one with the answers here, Jesus is saying. His seal is on me. So they go, okay, well then what must we do to be doing the works of God? I actually think they are asking a good question. I think given what Jesus has just said, this is the good question. That's why we get one of the most powerful gospel presentations anywhere in the Bible right here is because for a change, someone asks a smart question. Oh, okay, well then if we shouldn't be doing just the works that perish, then what should we be doing? They're actually listening. They're engaging in a conversation. This lasts for one whole question. It's really cool. 
So if not perishable things, then what? How? Here we are, the right question. So Jesus is going to answer it, and it's super refreshing um, when they ask the right question and Jesus answers it. Because usually Jesus is trying to ask, answer the question they didn't ask. Have you noticed that through the book of John so far? People ask a question and Jesus instead answers the one they should have asked. And so it's really, it's a weird thing to read their conversations going back and forth. It's like they're not having, two people are writing their conversations simultaneously rather than actually engaging with each other. They're not playing catch back and forth. But this works. Now this question, this is the question of religion. Right here. Here you have the, this is, if you want to summarize religion in one simple phrase, it is mankind seeking to answer this question. So you've all heard me say, many of you have heard me say this question before. So if I decide to buy flowers for my wife and I say, what kind of flowers should I give her? And ask a whole room full of people, what type of flowers should I give her? And you can throw out, you've heard, too many of you have heard the answer, so you'll shout out the answer. But you'll, you'll, you, you might say like roses or or, or lilies, or, or, or you might throw out, because you're going to tell me your favorite flowers, or what you think are prettier, or that kind of stuff. How valuable is that information? None. It's worth nothing to me, because I'm not buying flowers for you. I'm buying flowers for my wife. And so all of your opinion is equally valid slash invalid. I mean, okay, fine. Now, there are right and wrong answers, by the way. What kind of flowers should I buy for my wife? Anybody remember? Tulips, good. Right, tulips. Um, the kind she likes. See, religion is man answering the question, what does God want? What we're trying to do as a, as a faith following of Jesus Christ is to listen to the answer God gives to the question, what does God want? That's, what we're, that's our job, is to try to figure out God's answer, not just ours. And so that's, that's a, and it's hard to do. It's not always easy to do. It's why we go to Scripture for this. It's why we teach for Scripture. There are many answers that the world has given. I've kind of lumped them into four or five answers. You've got to kind of the atheist, humanist, um, naturalist, Wicca, Satanist kind of answers. And the answers to their, their answer to this question is there are no such works. There is no such afterlife. There's no such God. And so there, there is no works of God like this. That's not how that really works. Then the naturalist, atheist answer would say there are no such works. Um, Buddhism and a lot of the kind of the more mystical Eastern religions, they each have a series of answers. They, they sound kind of like a self-help teaching, which is the, the reason is because that's what they were. Um, they were a, a, a wise human or an intelligent human comes onto the scene and says, um, hey, here's the, here's the seven habits of highly effective people. It just was done 400 years before the birth of Christ. So you get the eightfold path of life. Sounds just like it. And so the Buddha had these great, follow these eightfold paths. You, you read them and you're like, yeah, those all sound pretty smart. But they're clearly humans, a human trying to answer the question, what must we do? Um, if you want to reach nirvana, you need to make sure that you're acting, speaking, and living in the right manner. Become a master of those things. Hinduism, Sikhism, other groups of Buddhists, um, becoming a master of serving one of the millions of the godhood, um, or more than one of them, allows you to escape the cycle of reincarnation and become one with the godhood. It's the idea of the balance of karma. That most of the Eastern religions and many of the new, kind of new, newer agey or, or new versions of this that have come in the West, they typically have to do with good and bad balancing each other out. Well, if I do enough good things, then, then, then good things happen to me. If I do bad things, bad things happen to me. And if I do enough good things, eventually when I come back and I'm reincarnated or whatever, then I can come back in a better role or whatever. It's the balance of karma. <clears throat> karma sounds cute. 
Um, and, it, and yet the application of karma around the world has been the source of some of the greatest evil that has ever existed in the, world, in the planet. Um, that's how you end up with an untouchable class in India is because if they're born to this untouchable class and they're supposed to be beggars and they're supposed to be um, downtrodden and poverty-stricken people, if that's how they were born, then understand that that religion, the application of that religion is that's how they're supposed to stay. And if you give them a whole bunch of money and you feed them and you get them out of that poverty, all you've done is meant they're not paying off their karma debt, so they've got to come back that way next time. So instead, you should treat them like trash so that they could face the consequences of their last life and be treated like trash in this life so that next time when they come back, maybe they'll get a better situation. I'm not kidding. You know the kids who were recently trapped in the cave with the teacher? Yeah, this, here, here's a cute application of this story. Every one of these kids now has terrible karma. This is a problem they're facing right now because each one of these kids, the world all, the world all loves them, but they just disobeyed their parents. Every one of them disobeyed their parents, apparently, going into the cave, it turns out. Secondly, they caused a huge trauma for the whole planet. Everybody had to stop what they were doing to help them. And when you cause, when you, when you cause that kind of inconvenience, that's hard on your karma. And to make matters worse, you remember some guy died. One of the cavers died trying to get them out. All of that is now weighing on the karma of these children. So in that world right now, they're trying to do all these little things to improve their karma so that their next life they won't come back as abused, abused, terrible, criminal people because they were trapped in that cave all those days and they caused so much trauma on the rest of us. Understand, these kids are now facing at least emotional abuse, in my opinion, in an effort to make sure that our inconvenience doesn't weigh them down in the next life. How do you feel about that? It's heartbreaking to see the results of karma. When you see this concept of karma, don't think of it as something cute. It's not cute. It's mankind with all of our wickedness trying to answer the question, what must we do to do the works of God? We, we do good things and then maybe good things will happen to us and that's the, that's the way it plays out. It's not cute. Um, the Baha'i and many of the Eastern religions and, and that kind of stuff, Taoism, Confucianism, some versions of Buddhism um, and some of the Western ones say that just right thinking, changing our thinking, they're really philosophies more than they are religions. There is a God involved in it, but, but it's really how to figure out how to live that out and often karma is wound up into those as well. Be smarter. Islam is to please Allah. Um, who's a very capricious God. He's up, he's down. The five pillars are a way to attempt this. Martyrdom is another way to attempt this. It's, it's really about taking a God who's gonna do whatever he feels like doing um, and who doesn't really care about or particularly love uh, the creation um, and he's gonna decide whether you go to heaven or hell. That's really what those are about. Mormonism is another break off from Christianity. Typically follows the obeying the teaching of the church leaders. Um, the church leaders make decisions and the degree you obey the church leaders best those are your best shots for merit. Obey the teachers of the church and leave the good life they describe. But most of us, probably many of us, though we may run into those and some, some here may invest in those, uh, most of us, our problem are the erroneous Christian answers to this question. What most we do to be doing the works of God? Um, we should be baptized. We should have church membership. We should live good lives. We should give lots of money. We should have lots of money. Um, we should have our new cars drive to church on Sunday. A list of, maybe a list of negatives of things we're not supposed to do. We're not supposed to drink, smoke, gamble, chew, or date girls who do. Fundamentally, it comes down to this. These are the works of God, right? Is, is the things that we don't do. 
somehow. Or maybe it's community. Community is becoming kind of the new God of the Christian church is that we, we worship community as community in and of itself. And what we do is we say, I can find my answer in you and you can find your answer in me, which when we get down a little bit further to John 6, you will see that's really about us devouring each other than about devouring Jesus Christ, which is what we're called to do. And that's why we create so many problems. It's why we see so many crises within the church as we think, well, I shouldn't be, the, the, way that, the way that this group leader or the way that this teacher or the way that this person or the way that that person, and we get all offended, and so we, we quit church and we stop going, which is evidence that apparently what we were doing was worshiping that person, not Jesus Christ. Is all the evidence we need for that. That's how you get church splits is because we worship community rather than Jesus Christ. And so we devour each other rather than him. The human answer is some version of we don't need it. We don't need salvation. We don't need the works of God. Or we can rely on us to deliver the works of God. And that stuns me every time I hear it. Every time I hear any version of, well, my merit will do it. I, I just think that's the ultimate expression of denial. Have you met you? <laughs> Have you met me? I mean, is there anything in us that you would go like, yeah, that's the kind of merit we need to impress on almighty, holy God. I'm sure he'd be like, wow, now that's special. Like, really? I, don't, I, just, I just consider that an incredible delusion and I have a high opinion of humans. I, th I think humans are awesome. We're created in the image of God. But really? No, it's like no one's ever examined their own life if they think, oh, I will earn my way. I can solve these problems. My behavior will do it. I can make it on my own. Either there's no divinity or we're divinity is the two main answers it seems to come down to. Jesus Christ has his own answer. Jesus answers in verse 29. This is the work of of God. Now, what do you expect him to say? I mean, you've been raised in church. If you've been raised in church or whatever, you, what do you expect? To say? Or if you were to hear the media, how the media presents us as Christians, what would you think is going to be said here? This is the work of God. Go to church. <coughs> right? Um, do the weird things that Christians do on Sunday mornings. Get up early and sing. And I mean, who does that stuff? Sit and listen to some guy talk. That's what we expect. Or give money or serve the needy. All the things we talked about. Give them clean water and medical help and education. Again, nothing wrong with these as an application of living out life. But understand, they won't get you there. Your merit is never, my merit is never going to impress God. In and of its, it just isn't. Again, if you don't believe me, just watch yourself for one week. Just pay close attention for one week and say, is that life that's going to do it? As good as our lives are. So Jesus gives them an answer instead. Believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work. The work is to believe. He, he, he does it really again now. He, they ask the right question again. They do a pretty good job. But he doesn't answer it the way they expect. What do we need to do in order to? Now, they're saying in order to earn food from you. You'll see that in a second. But Jesus says, no, what you've got to do is believe. Believe. Now, that sounds weird. Here's the, the Greek word here, the root, pistis. Trust, faith, believe. So I checked this week to make sure that this was accurate because I'm not a Greek scholar. And it turns out I think this is right. So we don't have a word for faith that's a verb here. So I, I, did a, I performed a wedding last night, and I thought about adding this in, and I didn't know this couple well enough to do it. And so I may do it with, with uh, one of you guys someday when you get married. But I want to do the whole, you know, um, I 
Nick, um, take thee, Courtney, to be my wedded wife, um, and all, all the different things, you know, to, to love and cherish and nourish in sickness and health and richer and poorer and better and worse, forsaking all others until death parts us or the Lord shall come. And Nick says, I do. He gets distracted from her for just enough minutes. Oh, I'm sorry, were you speaking? Oh, I do. Like he is. He had no idea what I just said. He was too busy staring at her. I remember nothing that happened to my wedding. I mean, I remember except the conversations I had with Ginger while we were taking communion. Like everything else is a giant blur. Um, And so uh, he says, oh, I do. And I think one of these days what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn to her and say, do you believe him? <laughs> and, and to see if she says, I do back that way. Like, uh, I do. Like, okay, good. Because it's important that you believe him on this. I mean, what he just said. Do you believe he's really going to try? Is he going to succeed? No, let's just throw that. Let's take that off the mat. Of course, he's not going to succeed at this. But do you really believe him that he's going to diligently make the effort to live this out as we have just described? You know what? Now that I think about it, I do. I do think he will. Good. If you, ever think, if you ever doubt that, you need to talk. This is, the, this is that idea because we don't have a word in verb for faith. Do you faith that? So we don't have that. The Greeks do. That's the word that's here. The word that's here is the verb faith. Jesus is saying, faith in him whom he sent. That's that word. We use believe or we use trust. Typically in the Bible, it's either believe or trust. That helps us, maybe. The problem with believe is believe sounds like, a con, like we're, we're accepting a con artist almost. Like, do you believe that? Like, do you believe? A, I don't know if I believe it or not. Like, that, believe is hard for me. Trust I like. Do you trust this? Do you trust in the one he has sent? Now, here's the problem. Trust for what? Because see, trust, trust, faith, belief requires an object. You trust in who? Do you trust in what? So if, if you're one of those people, like if you've, if you've walked the aisle like I have or you've, you've prayed the prayer like I have, I remember at the time thinking like, I don't, I don't know that I know exactly what I'm getting into here. Like I'm trusting him for what? I'm, I'm asking him into my heart. I get that, fine. Do you, do you believe in him? Yes, but see, a lot of people believe in God for things he's not promised and that's why they get disillusioned. Do you believe that your church life will be perfect? Yeah, don't do that. Do you believe that the leaders in your life will be perfect? Don't do that. He doesn't promise you that. Do you believe that I won't go through suffering, that my parents or my children or my spouse won't die? Don't trust him for that. He doesn't promise that. Do I believe that my children won't rebel? He doesn't doesn't promise that. Do I believe that I won't face hardship or I won't be poor or I won't be sick? Don't. Don't trust him for that because he's not promising that. If anything, Jesus is promising the opposite. We get to John 14 and he says, oh, there's coming trouble. There's going to be trouble in your life. But do you trust him to be the work of God? Do you trust in him that this eternal life, this purpose of life thing, that we can look to him for that? That's what he's talking about. This is the, the root of the root pistis is, is the word that means to be persuaded. Can you be persuaded that Jesus is the one to trust in for life and life abundant and life eternal? <coughs> that's, that's the trust. 
Can you faith in him? The other things are works of a God follower. This is about consenting, being persuaded to follow him, to trust him. This is the work. Do you want to know the work? The work is believe in him, trust in him, faith in him, if you will. That's the work. Then, once that's established, then there's plenty of stuff to do. But understand, doing all those things without this are not the works of God. So if you feed the whole world in the name of you, you've not done the works of God. If you do it in the name of America or or the United Nations, those are not the works of God. The question is, are are you believing, trusting, faithing in him? Then what we do become, those become applications of the work, which is to trust. I hope that's making sense. It is hard to put into words. Ephesians 2 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works. No one can boast. That's the idea. It's a free gift that we, apparently our role in this is to accept it. Is to be persuaded by it. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Well, obviously... I'm not going to draw near to God unless I believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Oh, if I I don't believe he exists, I certainly am not going to believe that he rewards those who seek him. That's the idea. Will God reward you for seeking him? Do you trust him to do that? See, my kids, one of the rules in my family, in in our family, is that we reward hard work. Well, my kids always want to know in advance, but we don't allow until they get older, is to know what the reward is going to be before they do the work. Right? Hey, I need you to I need you to go outside and mow the lawn. Well, you gonna pay me? What's the rule? We reward hard work. Good. So you gonna pay me? I guess you'll have to wait and see. You never know what good thing is gonna come from that. It's kind of like that. I hope there's if there's any waiters in the room. It's kind of like the waiters who go ahead and apply the the tip to the end because of large groups. I'm always like, man, you just missed a great gambling opportunity. I'm always like, it seems to me like you'd always want to be like, let's see what happens. I've loved that. When I take, if those of you who take corporate groups to, 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 to lunches or dinners or stuff like that, I'm always like, don't, don't put it on there. Let me be generous. Don't put it, you put it on there. Okay, you've chosen your reward. It's 15%. I probably would have done 22, but 15 it is. Like, I don't tell them that. That would just be mean. But in my head, I'm like, I'm like, I don't know, too bad. Do you want me to tell you what you're going to get paid before you mow? Or do you just want good things to happen? Like, this is, and we're not, we don't like that. But do you trust that God will reward those who seek him without knowing what the reward will be? What would persuade us? That's what they're going to ask next. Do you believe what he has to say? We are somehow members of God's gift of persuading us. I don't fully get that. So that's what he tells them. You just believe in the one he has sent. Verse 30. So they say to him, then what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? This is their, yeah. Some of you are shaking your head like, dadgummit. They lost it already. They had it for just a second. They got it. So Jesus says, you need to do the, what are the works? Good question. You need to believe in the one. Here's the work of God to believe in the one that he has sent. Good, next. And they go, well, what sign are you going to do to prove to us that we should be persuaded by you? Now, they're responding to his point. You should be persuaded in me. And they say, 
Well, then what sign are you going to do to persuade us? What work will you perform? Catch, if you have forgotten this already, these are the same people who less than a day before ate their fill from five loaves and two fish. Their motives are impure. Welcome to the human race, right? Man, you were so close. What would you persuade us? Now, I have, I have a point to make. This is a, the youth, when we went to camp this year, we had a pretty good speaker at camp this year. <coughs> he made a point <coughs> that I really enjoyed. As he was teaching, I don't even remember which story he was teaching, but as he was teaching through this uh, passage from the, the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament, and, and he said, um, he said uh, you know, our habit, especially when reading the Old Testament, is to identify with the good guy. We identify with Daniel or David or Gideon. That's probably not the point. More often than not, we should be identifying with the bad guy. Because that's usually more often the role that we're actually going to play very often. And so that was very healthy. I hope you're identifying with this crowd. I, I hope you're doing that well, that you're able to say, like, I hope, you, I hope you're able to laugh at yourself a little bit at their questions as you realize, yeah, these are kind of the same things I talk to God about. What have you done for me lately? Well, I did this miracle yesterday. Yesterday? Yeah, but I'm hungry now. What have you done today? This is their, anyway, I love this. This, this actually a little bit plays out as a comedy routine. I really think it does. If this was done properly on screen, I think we should be laughing at the end of it. So they, they have some ideas. What sign could you perform? You ready for their idea of the perfect sign for Jesus to do? That if he would do this sign, then they could believe in him. Then they could be persuaded. Ready? Verse 31. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So here's their brilliant idea for a sign that would cause them to be persuaded by Jesus Christ if he fed them. Yeah, that would be, that's the miracle they would love to see. You know what we really would, you know what would really convince us, Jesus, is if you fed us. And full circle, right? We're right back to the point Jesus made at the beginning. Jesus knew this was coming. He knew this was it. So their idea is bread. The same people the next day. God must have created humor. Somebody, um, Greg, uh, I was in a conversation with some young men Friday morning. Greg Sturrock was there. And as we talked about this, he said, God must have created humor in order to make our ignorance a little less painful. <laughs> so at least we could laugh at ourselves. Jesus said to them, I tell you, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is, is he I'm going to comment on this. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, one of the commentaries pointed out that this translation really only works if you already know the whole story. That the way they probably would have heard it would have come across like this. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's how they probably would have understood it. They didn't realize Jesus yet was talking about a person. That he's still talking about a thing. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Um, I, I think that's still, they think he's still talking about manna. Now they're citing a passage in Nehemiah chapter 9. They cite this passage. Now they cite it slightly off. They say he, um, he gave bread. He gave them bread. In the passage of Nehemiah 9, verse 15, he says that the Nehemiah actually, the people have a repenting before God. They are horrified at their sin. The, the scripture has been opened to them, and, and they're terrified of the, of the fact that they have been offending God all this time, and they go through this long worship service in which they proclaim all the amazing things that God has done. 
this is what you've done. This is what you've done. This is what you've done. And the part of it is, you gave them bread for heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And I don't, I don't know if Jesus is taking issue with them, the fact that the people said he gave them bread from heaven versus you, that maybe they're talking about as if it was Moses. But for whatever reason, Jesus' response seems to be correcting the idea that it wasn't Moses who gave bread. It was God the Father. But for that, if, if whatever he's correcting, there's a funny thing to consider here. These people want manna. Now, some of you have been in church long enough, you've read the Bible long enough to remember, how did their forefathers feel about the manna? They whined and complained about it all the time. So these people now, because they're not students of history or students of themselves, think this is what's going to make me happy is if God will do the whole manna trick again. And Jesus knows perfectly well because he just fed them the day before, that then you're just going to be hungry again. The people disobeyed about manna. They didn't appreciate the manna. They wanted meat. They wanted quail. They, wanted, they whined about stuff all the time, even though they had this manna. He knows people, would bread every day be okay with them? No. Then they would want something in addition to bread. Because that's how the flesh works. Our flesh is never satisfied. We're never done. We don't go, well, that was a great experience. I don't ever need to have another good experience. I was a great night's sleep. All the rest of them can be bad. That was an awesome meal. I never need to eat again. We tell ourselves stuff like that. That's how addiction works. I did this thing that I'm addicted to. I'm never going to do it again. And then we do it again. Because the flesh is still part of who we are. We're looking for that comfort. Would that be okay? No, it wouldn't be for them. It wouldn't be for us. We go to a, on a mission trip, and the main thing we talk about while we're there is the food that we don't have while we're down there. All they have here is chicken and rice and beans. Three meals a day. Can't wait to get back and have a hamburger. Meanwhile, the, the work of the gospel is going on all around us. Everybody, this is one of my favorite Rich Mullins songs, not the song, the words of the song. He says, everybody I know says they need just one thing. But what they really mean is they need just one thing more. That's us. Jesus gives life to the world. This bread gives life to the world. That sounds great. They respond with a totally appropriate request. Well, then give us this bread always. Exact, almost the exact same language as the woman at the well. Well, then, sir, please give me this water always. And Jesus said, okay, I will. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I say to you that you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. So he drops the other shoe. The bread isn't manna. And the bread isn't even bread, it's Jesus. They want the bread of life always, deal, here I am, for always, forever, real life. Not just respiration, not just blood pumping, not just digestion going on, but life. Most of us have plenty to eat. And yet depression and anxiety and, and fear and divorce and all the things that are founded in fear are, are off the charts. Turns out having full stomachs isn't solving our problem. What we need is the bread of, to be filled up with the bread of life. And that doesn't mean, by the way, that we won't sometimes be depressed or anxious or have marriage struggles or, or all that kind of stuff. What it means is there will be a foundation there that when everything else gets stripped away, it will still be there. There's a life that transcends living. Jesus is trying to help us understand that. And that life can go on forever. It doesn't depend on our mood or our status. It is nourished by his very person. And listen, listen. He came for you. He came for you. 
You and I, we were lost or, and, and afraid. We were like a sheep out in the wilderness by ourselves, helpless and, and hopeless, and he came for you. This is the good news. I'm here. Trust me. To put this passage together, we should picture a, a cold, huddled, wet, afraid, scared person on a ledge, and Jesus is saying, trust me. He's offering a hand and saying, you want, you want the work? You want to know how to fix all this? Well, here, trust me. That's, that's really the gospel message. He came for you. He came for me. There is a God. You're not alone. He knows you, and he loves you anyway. He chooses you. He came for you. I want to give you time to repeat that inside of your own head. He came for me. He tells these people, I've come for you. I'm here. It's me. But you don't believe. Even with everything else, you don't believe. You say you want evidence and signs, but you have them. So you're always waiting on another one. You may reject me, but not everyone will. In 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I'm going to start, I'm going to wrap up here. <coughs> God gives and we come. He takes us, he came to us, he draws us in, he gives, we come, we come, and he keeps. One commentary, this is frustrates the fire out of me, one of the commentaries I read added the phrase, if, to this when he says, I should lose, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, one of the human commentaries added in this phrase, if he continues in the faith, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Taking a phrase from Colossians 1 and forcing it into the middle of this verse in an abusive way. That's totally misuse of this passage. Remember the old cliffhanger, you remember cliffhanger, the old Stallone movie? You know, it opens with him like hanging there and he can't hold on to the person. He ends up dropping them into this, down this big crevasse. So how many people do you think that happens to Jesus with? How often has he gone, no, 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 ah, that he had them, but then he just couldn't hold on, that Jesus just couldn't hold on one more second, that despite the fact that this passage that Jesus says, I should lose nothing that he has given me, despite that, there are times when it turns out his work just wasn't sufficient. It just wasn't enough. Never is the answer to that question. He's never faced that moment. Everyone he's caught, he's kept. That's how that works. That's a, taking that passage out of context and putting it in there. I mean, literally putting it in the verse. I could not believe that he, the guy literally parenthetically put it in there in italics. And I was like, wow. Me just taking scripture and going like, I'm going to cut and paste to fit my theology. That's a, man. Anyway, that's, as I'm sitting there reading that thinking, how many times has Jesus faced that moment? He hasn't. This is the will, verse 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is what you're supposed to faith in him for. This is it exactly. You faith in him, that he will hold on to you, and he will never let you go, and he will raise you up when it comes time, forever. That's what we're faithing in him for. He will give you eternal life and raise you up someday. If you faith in him, you have eternal life and he will raise you up someday. 
That is the gospel. And we get it right here in this verse because these crazy, foolish people asked a great question and Jesus answers a gift to us forever. If you've never said, listen, I get it, I get it, I get it, I can't do it, and none of these other things are going to answer the question for me. Only God can solve this problem. So he came to me to solve this problem, and he offers me his hand. And if I believe in him, if I will face in him, he will hold on to me and never let me go, and he will raise me up in the last day. If you've never accepted his hand, if you've never accepted that free gift, today is the day of salvation. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the good work of your son. Thank you for the question that these people asked. Um, Thank you for um, John's sister writing a poem about this, for John singing it with us this morning. Thank you for all of those who have written about this, who have prayed about this, who have concentrated on this, who have studied this, and thank you that your son came and came to purchase us, came to get us, to set us free. And Lord, if there's anybody here who's never been set free, I pray that today will be the day of salvation for them. For all of us who have been set free, I pray that we will embrace that freedom in a new way as we recognize we get the opportunity to live out that freedom. And that now the things we do can be your works because we have believed. Thank you, Father, for all of this. In the name of your Son and through the power of your Holy Spirit and according to your will, amen.